Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is our 22nd sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham. And our text this evening is Genesis chapter 2, I beg your pardon, Genesis chapter 22, pages 1 through 19. That's page 16 in the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. It is Abraham's testing and God's provision in his command to sacrifice Isaac. In it, we see how God provides a substitute for the life of Abraham's only son, the son of God's promise. It's an account which is rich because it is a foreshadowing of the life and ministry of our Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, our Anglican pattern of liturgy and Christian year For example, the lessons and carols at Christmas, or the readings of the Easter Vigil, the watch from Christ's burial to his resurrection. This narrative, Genesis 22, 1 through 19, is a key cornerstone text because it displays for us the pattern of God's covenant of grace, of which there are two sides. In Exodus 6, Verse 7, we hear it. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Begun and grounded in the character of God as a gracious God, who provides our salvation, and we, in response, a life of faithful obedience, being adopted into his family as his children. So this account in Genesis 22 is so rich in the history of our own redemption. It's proper that we move a little more slowly. Therefore, this sermon and the next will focus on the two parts of the covenant of grace. We begin with Abraham's response, his obedience. It's the necessary consequence, the therefore, if you like, of God's grace. God has graciously saved and preserved Abraham and his son by faith. Therefore, Abraham has lived a life, as we have seen, of obedience with highs and lows. He understands that he is no longer his own, but belongs body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism says, In answer to what is your only comfort in life and in death, it is simply this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Abraham could have affirmed those words. And so when we return then to Genesis 22 after Easter Day, we'll consider the other side of the covenant of grace and God's gracious provision. 
Now, there are three points that I want to address here this evening, spending most of my time on the second and the third. The first is the certainty of the testing. The second is its context, and then to conclude with the actual content of the test. So, number one, let's begin with the certainty. And when I speak of certainty, I do not mean Abraham's certainty. We see this, don't we, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. You can see that there. Will you follow along with me? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now notice how Moses sets the scene. He gives us what we've come to expect, his usual editorial aside. After these things, God tested Abraham. And it's clear from the testimony of Scripture, as we heard in our reading in Hebrews chapter 11, these words, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, Therefore, it's very clear, isn't it? God is testing Abraham. But notice, we know it's a test. But Abraham does not. Indeed, Abraham is like Job here, isn't he? You may recall how in Job chapter 1, we learn from behind the scenes in the heavenly court that Job is to be tested, but he doesn't know it. Both Abraham and Job do not know that God is testing them. So Moses introduces this new chapter in the life of Abraham. We we see it in the phrase also, after these things. And he's used this, hasn't he, to indicate that some time undefined has passed. In other words, these events happen after the events of the previous years that we studied in Genesis 20. And 21. You might want to call that the Abimelech cycle, beginning with the first encounter with Abimelech, and as we saw last Sunday, with the final encounter. So we're not told exactly how long this is, but we do know that some time indeed has passed. Because now Isaac is of an age. He was three years old when we last saw him. Indeed, he's probably in his late teens, perhaps as far as his early 20s at this point because he has a hand in carrying the wood and supplies up Mount Moriah, doesn't he? So you'd have to be of a certain age and have a certain body mass at this time to be able to help your father, who is indeed quite an elderly man, take the supplies further forward. So that is the certainty of the testing. Now, what about the content? Let's consider, I beg your pardon, the context, the context of the test. What is the context of the test? Well, as we have seen, it is actually the totality of Abraham's life up to this point. In other words, what we have here in Genesis 22 is, if I could call it this way, his final exam. His final exam. 
Abraham's life of faith was launched right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when he left Ur in obedience to God's promise that he would make Abram into a great nation. He will bless him, and the nations of all the earth would be blessed through him. Now, what we've seen in our study, I hope you've noticed this, I tried to underline it for you, is how over the years, and we're talking decades and decades here, this great promise of seed and land is repeated and reiterated with remarkable drama and increasing clarity. God never wavers in these two promises of the covenant that he makes. So at the onset, Abram, fresh from Ur, travels all through central Canaan, the future promised land. The Lord appears to him, promising this land to his offspring. And he builds an altar, doesn't he? Within sight of the pagan centers of worship, as a countermeasure, planting the flag, as it were, and worships the Lord there, saying, claiming this land for the covenant God. Next, after Lot separated from Abram and took for himself the best portion of the land in the well-watered valley of the Jordan where Sodom and Gomorrah were, God commanded Abram to look north, south, east, and west as far as he could see. And he promises him in this 360-degree view that all that he can see is for your offspring forever. Your children will be numbered like the dust of the earth. And sometime later, after Abram had rescued Lot from the eastern alliance of kings, Abram lays anxious one night in his childless state, and God dramatically comes to him again and promises him an heir. Indeed, he takes him outside, tells him to come out from his tent and look up at the Milky Way. And count them if you can. So shall your offspring be. Abraham, awed, humble, silent under the stars. And the scripture speaks for him at this point. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. He threw himself on the mercy of God knowing that physically it was impossible for him to have an offspring. He's absolutely sure now that he will have this son. So the next day, Abram obeyed God's directiveness as God told him. And he arranged the parts of the slaughtered animals for the covenant sacrifice. But instead of him going through it, the Lord himself comes and passes through the severed animals in the flaming furnace in the darkness, this glowing furnace moving up and down with the body parts either side freshly slaughtered. This unilateral, unconditional covenant, it sets the seal that if Abraham's descendants did not appear or get the land, God himself would be destroyed. So we can see how Abram is assured again and again of this promise. 
that countless people would come from his body, that the land would go to his people. And years later, he's 99 years old. God's preparing Abraham's heart for the covenant of circumcision, and he changes his name, Abram, to Abraham, father of many. Again, showing how he would be fruitful, even as an old man. That nations and kings would come for him. Canaan would be their possession. He also renamed Sarai. She becomes Sarah, princess. Because from her, a great line of kings will come. Ultimately, the king of kings and lord of lords himself. Promised in Genesis 3.15. God also named their yet-to-be-conceived son Isaac, laughter, He would be born within the year. And Han receiving their new names and circumcision. All are circumcised. And Sarah even laughs that this is even possible. We saw how during all those years, the great promises are reiterated again and again. Abram's faith, uneven. There were the lies to Pharaoh and to Abimelech. There's Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael that made some 16 years of chaos in his family. With the birth of Isaac and the departure, the necessary one of Ishmael, the heir is born. The treaty with Beersheba, with Abimelech, he's reassured once again of a people. Here it is before him, and the land right there under his feet. That's his well, and it's his and his descendants forever. And then we saw last Sunday, Abraham's faith in God's word, therefore soars as he calls him the Lord God, his covenant name, and El Olam, everlasting one. Everlasting one says it all because it confirms what? Stability, security, permanence. This is a sure thing in Abraham's heart. These statements again and again. First, when he sets foot in Canaan for the first time. Second, under the stars of the Milky Way, when he saw the fiery presence of the Lord glide up and down. When he's renamed the father of a multitude, princess, circumcision, and finally they're holding the baby Isaac in their arms and they praise and sing El Olam, everlasting one. Restatements of the promise initiate Abraham's long, secure stay in the land of the Philistines, Beersheba, until the test. Now, what you may have missed is that we've actually come full circle. What began in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1? The first time we hear God command Abram to go, he offers up what? His past. He gives up his country, his clan, his father's house to receive the promise of a heavenly father's blessing. Now it ends with the same command, go. But now he's to offer up what? His future. His future. Your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
Abraham has to rely on the Lord, even when it seems the Lord is going back on everything he said, everything he's done, every covenant promise made over those many decades. And so we come to the test. And this is no meager test. We consider the context that I've just reviewed with you, these many weeks of study that we've given. We can see now how we are at the crux of things, don't we? Indeed, the psychological weight. Can you imagine what this must have been like? It must have been huge. Decades of waiting. Hopelessness in a situation, doing age and infirmity, making any child impossible. And now walking alongside Abraham is a fine young man, the risks of infancy and childhood far behind him, his son, his only son, in terms of God's covenant promise. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the one. Promised. How in the world can a good God ask this? How can he demand Isaac's life? Well, we know, don't we? It is impossible for us. We just repeat the command over and over. You shall not kill. We're forbidden to even consider in our thoughts the destruction of another who bears the image of God. But not God. He can require a life. Why? Because we are all justly judged. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all mouths are stopped. We are all born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me, David writes in Psalm 51. We learn in the scriptures, don't we, how God graciously is delaying judgment, for he does not wish any to perish, but that all come to repentance. The wonder is not, why doesn't God save everyone? The wonder is, why does God save anyone? So in light of the test context, it appears to Abraham that God has gone back on his promise. And now it gets fascinating. What's so unusual about verses 3 and 4? Can you notice that? Let me read them aloud again. See where you can figure this out. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. What's wrong with this? This isn't the Moses style we've come to expect, is it? It's not his usual terse style. After these things, this. That's all we get. Instead, what does he do? He goes into detail here, doesn't he? So much so that verse 3 is really unnecessary. I could just say, so he lifted up his eyes on the third day and he saw them out. So what's going on here? What is he doing this? 
He's slowing down the action with details. He wants to underline the unpacking of events. This is no impulsive act on Abraham's part. But there's no pause or deliberation either, is there? Abraham's not being impulsive. He's carefully bringing all these things together, one after the other. The whole time, we can just imagine thinking about this command, go, go. And he had three days and two nights to ponder. Can you imagine trying to lay down your head that night? knowing what was at the end of this journey. He never turns around. He never goes back to Beersheba. And he also underlines the trust he has in the covenant promise in verse 5. Do you see it there? Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, this is one of those times where I have an issue with the ESV because it omits something very emphatic in the original language. Here it is in the NIV, a translation I don't usually like, but they get it right here. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. The we is emphatic, in the original. So is Abraham lying? Absolutely not. How am I able to say that? After all, he did lie before. We've seen him lie before. Hey, uh, yeah, she's my sister. (laughs) Pay no attention. We know he wasn't lying. Why? Because God's word provides the answer. We heard it tonight as Alina read it. Hebrews 11, verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. What's this? Abraham believed in the reality of bodily resurrection. Therefore, he knew even if Isaac was slain, God would restore him to life because of the certainty of God's character in the promises he has made. This, my dear friends, is the first example in the Old Testament of the hope in the resurrection. Resurrection is not, as the liberal theologian may insist, a New Testament idea. Indeed, I would argue this way. Abraham would never have made the sacrifice if it were not for the fact of the resurrection. And that's a key point, you see. And we should pause to consider it because sometimes we get our understanding of the resurrection wrong, don't we? We think of the resurrection as a hope for, you know, the end. Right? You get to the end, resurrection, that's it. Something for after or beyond this life. But what's going on here? Resurrection animates Abraham's life. What's going on here? Resurrection animates completely the believer's life. It enables us to set apart 
to consecrate all to God. And I mean all. All means all, doesn't it? This is why James chapter 2, verse 21 cites this episode in Abraham's life as the benchmark of total obedience for every Christian believer. How is Abraham able to do this? Because of the resurrection. Because nothing's lost. Whatever you give up, nothing is lost. It's as if every believer has their little tiny Isaacs that they don't want to give up, don't they? Why? We've lost sight of the resurrection. This is what James says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now you may recall from our study of James last year how James is addressing the problem of the empty professor. In other words, the Christian who professes but whose life is empty or it's legalistic or it's grudging in its obedience. James reminds us that our works of obedience justify us before other men and women because we're so animated by the truth of the gospel. It's that simple. Therefore, Abraham's obedience is our obedience. For Abraham to be willing to lose his only son is confirmed in our Savior's words as he makes the allusion to it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. It's that one we never can figure out. Why is he doing this? He's referring to this. Genesis chapter 22. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And here it is. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All means all, doesn't it? That is the call of faith. When we are grounded in the reality of what God has done and given us proof for our own eyes, as we shall see in two weeks' time on Resurrection Day, how can we not offer up all, knowing confidently that nothing is lost, that all you have, all you are, belong to him The biblical principle is so simple, my dear friends. We do not labor to resurrection, but we live laying down all because of resurrection. Your fear of loss is conquered by our Heavenly Father's glorious resurrection, restoration, that is why Abraham could continue to put one step before the other in the most grievous testing of his life. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top.
All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church, Ancient Truth, Real People, New Life.